Amen. Please be seated. And let's open our Bibles together to the book of Romans, chapter 15. Romans, chapter 15. And I'm going to read and preach verses 8 through 13 this morning. The heading in my Bible that the publishers have added in for verses 8 through 13 says, Christ, the hope of Jews and Gentiles. You may have something similar in your Bible. And what Paul's talking about here is that Jesus Christ is the hope of salvation for both Jews and Gentiles who've put their trust in him for their salvation, which is what God promised would happen all throughout the Old Testament, that in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed, and that promise is fulfilled in Christ and by Christ. Christ became a servant to the circumcised, that is to the Jews, in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs, those promises, in you shall all the families of the earth be blessed, and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy that the Gentiles also, along with the Jews, might put their hope in Christ. So Christ is the hope of both Jews and Gentiles. And I've entitled the sermon this morning, Christ, Our Hope, because he's our hope too, who believe in him. He's the hope of all who believe in him for salvation. I think that's good news for us this morning. Because out in the world, hope is hard to come by, isn't it? With world events as they are, with various things going on in our own country, in our culture, headlines don't necessarily fill us to overflowing with feelings of hope when we read them. And we have our own personal struggles too, each one of us, our sins, our temptations, the sin of others around us. We have broken bodies, broken relationships. We have difficult circumstances. We have painful losses in our lives. Just the wear and tear of life in a fallen world as well. And hope is sometimes hard to come by. I think that is why it's good news this morning that Christ is our hope because Christ is not hard to come by. He is near to us. He is with us right now. He dwells inside us by his spirit. And he's our hope both in this life and in the life to come. And in him, in Christ, we can abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's where Paul ends this section as we'll see So Christ is our hope, and in him we can abound in hope. That's what we're going to think about together in these verses. But let me pray first, and then we'll begin. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you and we praise you for being our hope, for being our source of hope, not only for the life to come, but also in the here and now. And that's good news for us because we sometimes struggle with hopelessness to varying degrees. And we acknowledge that often that is because of our own sin. And so we pray that you would fill our minds and our hearts with these truths that are before us so that by the power of your spirit, 
we may abound in hope for your glory. We pray in your name, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Romans 15, I'll start at verse 7, but again, our focus is going to be on verses 8 through 13. This is the inspired, inerrant, and infallible word of God. Romans 15, verse 7. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again it is said, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will come. Even he who arises to rule the Gentiles, in him will the Gentiles hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. As you can see in your sermon notes, we'll look first at what Paul tells us in verse eight and the beginning of verse nine, that Christ became a servant, why he became a servant. Then we'll see how that was promised in the Old Testament, as it is written, is how Paul begins a sort of train of quotations from the Old Testament, the second half of verse nine down through verse 12. Finally, we'll look at Paul's prayer, or prayer wish, in verse 13, that believers would abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. So first, let's look at how Paul tells us that Christ became a servant in verse eight and the beginning of verse nine. And I want us to notice three things here in particular. First, notice briefly the connection to the previous verse, just so we can understand the flow of thought here. In verse seven, Paul had said, therefore welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. And now in verse eight, he's explaining how Christ has welcomed them. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness, etc. This is how he has welcomed us, Paul's saying. By becoming a servant to show God's truthfulness to his promises. He has welcomed us by becoming a servant to us. That's the connection to the previous verse so we can understand the flow of thought. The second thing I want us to notice is this profound statement that Christ became a servant. Let's think about that for just a minute. Christ became a servant. He took the form of a servant, as Paul says in Philippians 2, verse 7. He was among us as the one who serves, as he himself said in Luke 22, 27. He came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many, Matthew 20, 28. He was the suffering servant, predicted in Isaiah 53, who bore our griefs and carried our sorrows, who was pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. 
whose chastisement brought us peace, and by whose wounds we are healed. Christ became a servant, the, the master became a servant. The Lord, the King, became a servant for us and for our salvation. 2 Corinthians 8, 9 says, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Christ became a servant. And if Christ, who is the master, became a servant and humbly served, how much more should we, who are servants, humbly serve? And how inspiring and motivating it is that our master humbly served. It's like if if a new employee at Chick-fil-A came in one day to work and saw Chuck Stepp, the owner, the owner of Chick-fil-A, cleaning the bathrooms. How inspiring and motivating would that be, and I'm sure is when it happens. If the owner is humbly serving, how much more should the new employee humbly serve? How inspired, how motivated to humbly serve they would be if that's what they see the owner himself doing. When we see that Christ, our master, humbly served, let's be convicted of our pride and our slowness to serve. Let's repent of our self-serving attitudes and actions. And let's follow in the footsteps of our master, humbly serving others as Christ humbly served us. Christ became a servant. That's the second thing I want us to notice. The third thing I want us to see here is what Paul says about why Christ became a servant. He became a servant for two reasons, really, a reason related to God's promises and a reason related to God's mercy. Look again at verse eight. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised, that is, to the Jews, for two reasons. Number one, to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs. And, number two, in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. So first, Christ became a servant to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs. God had made promises to the patriarchs, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. For example, in Genesis chapter 12, verse three, mentioned already, in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. He made that promise to Abraham and then he repeated that promise to Abraham's son Isaac and to Isaac's son Jacob. And that promise was fulfilled in Christ, by Christ. Christ became a servant. He came from heaven to earth to live and die and rise again for sinners so that salvation would come to the Jews and to the Gentiles of his people so that all the families of the earth would be blessed so that all who repent of their sin and put their trust in him would be saved eternally. So Christ became a servant to show God's truthfulness to his promises given to the patriarchs. 
God is truthful to his promises, isn't he? He is true to his promises. He's true to his word. He is trustworthy and reliable and dependable. What he says, he will do. What he promises, he will fulfill. He keeps all his promises. He's never broken one of them and he never will. We don't have to wonder if he's gonna keep his promises. Like someone doing a trust fall who's not sure if the other person's gonna catch them. We can be sure that God will keep his promises at just the right time and in just the right way that brings him the most glory and us the most good. He is truthful to his promises. So I encourage you in light of that to look for his promises in your Bibles. Look, look for his promises in his word as you read it. And when you find them, memorize them. Hide them in your heart. Call them to your mind in time of need. Preach them to yourself and believe them with all your heart and then act on them in your life. My personal favorite is Isaiah 41.10. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. That's a promise that's true for all who trust in Christ. And God will be true to that promise. You can trust him to keep it. God is true. God is truth with a capital T, absolute truth, eternal, unchangeable truth. He is the source of all truth and the standard of truth. He is truthful, full of truth. And that's actually one of the reasons we should be truthful. So kids, one of the reasons you should always tell the truth is because God always tells the truth. God is truthful. Therefore, we who trust in him, we who know him, should be truthful. We shouldn't lie because Satan is a liar and is the father of lies. Rather, we should be truthful because God is truthful and is the father of truth. And when we are not truthful, which all of us are at times, we should remember his promise that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. When we confess our sins to God, he is true to his promise to forgive and to cleanse through Christ. So Christ became a servant to show God's truthfulness to the promises he gave to the patriarchs. The second reason he became a servant is in verse nine, first part of verse nine, and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. And of course, those two reasons go together, don't they? Because the promises given to the patriarchs include the Gentiles in them. In you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And this includes us, or most of us at least, any of us who are not ethnically Jewish. One of the reasons Christ became a servant was so that we would glorify God for his mercy. 
or as Paul says later in the passage, so that we would hope in him. And this is not a new idea that Paul is introducing. It's an old idea that Paul's underscoring as old as the Old Testament is how old this idea is. That's why Paul begins the second half of verse nine with those words, as it is written, which is our second main point now, as it is written. And what Paul does here with this train of quotations is he shows how everything we've been talking about, everything he's just mentioned, was predicted in the Old Testament scriptures. And he quotes four passages, and the first is Psalm 18, verse 49, as it is written, therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. David is speaking in this psalm, and he's saying to God, I will praise you, I will sing to you, not just among the Israelites, but also among the Gentiles. Therefore, I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And then in verse 10, he quotes Deuteronomy 32, verse 43. And again, it is said, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. So God's people, the Israelites, are rejoicing, rejoicing in God. But the Gentiles also are called to rejoice in God along with the Israelites. And then in verse 11, he quotes Psalm 117, verse one. Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. And here we see something of the parallelism of Hebrew poetry, in this case what's called synonymous parallelism. The first line is praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and the second line is parallel and synonymous or similar to the first with extol him, corresponding to praise the Lord, you see that, and all the peoples, corresponding to all you Gentiles, parallelism. And then in verse 12, he quotes Isaiah 11, verse 10. And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will come. Even he who arises to rule the Gentiles, in him will the Gentiles hope. And there we see the theme of hope, which is expanded in the next verse, which we'll see in just a minute. But again, there's a focus on the Gentiles, just like in the other quotations. And in this case, there's also a focus on Christ. And look at how Christ is described. He is the root of Jesse. Jesse being King David's father, you may remember. The root of Jesse is a reference to the Messiah who would come from David's line. And Christ was, as Paul says in Romans 1, descended from David according to the flesh. And it says that the root of Jesse will come. Of course, we know the root of Jesse has come, hasn't he? He has come in his incarnation, which we sang about together earlier. And then it says, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles. And of course, Jesus has arisen in his resurrection And he now rules the Gentiles through the gospel. He subdues us to himself. He rules and defends us. 
and he restrains and conquers all his and our enemies. He exercises his saving reign over all the Gentiles who have put their trust in him, over all the Gentiles who have put their hope in him. As it says at the end of verse 12, in him will the Gentiles hope. And many Gentiles down through the ages have put their hope in him, their hope of salvation, including us today by God's grace. Notice the verbs that are used in these quotations to describe how the Gentiles glorify God for his mercy. In the first one, we have praise and sing. In the second quotation, we have rejoice. In the third one, we have praise again and extol. And in the fourth one, we have hope hope. This is what we do together in corporate worship on Sunday mornings and Sunday evenings, isn't it? Children and moms and dads and elderly members and college students and empty nesters and singles and young married couples and teenagers, we praise God together. We sing to his name. We rejoice in him with his people, not just by ourselves, but together with his people. We extol the Lord and we put our hope in him together. And we do that as it is written. As God has promised would happen. So when we come to church, we're not just going through the motions, we're actually fulfilling these ancient promises. More is happening than we sometimes think is happening here at church. What's happening is what God said would happen. What's happening is that we are glorifying God for his mercy together. Praising him, singing to him, rejoicing in him, extolling him and putting our hope in him together as it is written, as he has promised That's what we're doing together. That's what God is doing in us. These ancient promises are being fulfilled. And knowing that, I think can help us a little bit with our attitude about coming to church, which is something we all struggle with at times. When we go to church on Sunday, it's not like we're going to the dentist to get our teeth pulled. It's not like we're going to the doctor's office to get a shot. No, it's more like we're going to a birthday party or a Thanksgiving feast with each other where the fellowship and the food, the spiritual food is delightful and bountiful, where God himself is with us in a special way, where his means of grace are being served up and poured out for our spiritual nourishment and the refreshment of our souls. That's why David said in Psalm 122, verse one, I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. And not I was sad or I was mad, but I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. When we go to church, we glorify God together for his mercy. 
We praise him and sing to him and rejoice in him and extol him and we put our hope in him together as it is written, as he has promised. Also, these verses and many others like them in the Bible are why we focus on missions as a church as we do because we want these promises to be fulfilled. We want the seed of the gospel to be scattered far and wide. And we want that seed to take root and sprout and grow so that people from every tribe and language and nation will glorify God for his mercy along with us so that all peoples will praise and worship God and put their hope in him. This is why we support missionaries as a church and try to support them well. This is why we pray for God to raise up missionaries, even from among our own, from our own number. This is why we encourage everyone to read good books on missions, good missionary biographies. This is why we pray together for missionaries and their ministries on a regular basis because we want to see these promises fulfilled. We want to see all the peoples extol the Lord and put their hope in Christ. Well, like I said, this theme of hope spills over into the next verse, which is Paul's prayer or prayer wish that we would abound in hope. And let's look at that now under our third main point, abound in hope. Look at verse 13. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. Three things we should note here. First, how Paul refers to God, how he refers to God. He refers to him as the God of hope, similar to back up in verse five, where he referred to God as the God of endurance and encouragement. Here, it's the God of hope, meaning the God who is the source of our hope. God is a deep well of hope that will never run dry. And we can draw hope from that well through prayer and through believing his promises. If God is the source of our hope, we are never hopeless. We can always be hopeful. If our source of hope is our money or our health or our popularity or our possessions or our children or our beauty, then our hope is plugged into the wrong outlet. Don't plug your hope into an outlet that has no power. Plug your hope into God. As the psalmist said, why so downcast, O my soul? Put your hope in God. Plug your hope into God. The source of our hope is not human, it's divine. It's not the creature, it's the creator. It's not finite, it's infinite. It's not temporal, it's eternal. The source of our hope is the God of hope. So that's how Paul refers to God. He is the God of hope. Notice secondly, 
what Paul wants God to do, what Paul want God's, wants God to do. He says, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing. Doesn't that sound wonderful? We should all post that in our homes or knit it onto something and put it on a pillow or something. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing. Sometimes we are full of fear and anxiety and worry. Or we are full of lust or greed or gluttony. Or we are full of discouragement and depression and despair. But as Christians, we can be full of joy and peace instead. And God is the one who fills us with joy and peace. And he fills us with joy and peace in believing. That is, as we believe his promises. We all know from experience that it's when we doubt his promises that we lack peace that we lack joy. Doubt produces despair, not joy. It produces inner turmoil, not peace. But when we believe God's promises, when we trust him, when we take him at his word, then we have joy, then we have peace. The joy and the peace come from God. He is the one who fills us with joy and peace. And he fills us in believing as we believe his promises. Faith is the funnel through which he pours joy and peace into our hearts. So pray for faith to believe his promises. Pray that he would fill you with all joy and peace in believing as you believe those promises. That's what Paul wants God to do. Third and finally, notice what will be the result. What will be the result? End of verse 13. So that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. It's not by our power It's by the power of the Holy Spirit that we can abound in hope. If your cell phone battery is down to 3%, there's not much you can do on your phone or for very long. But if it's plugged into the wall, if it's charging, if it's drawing power from the power source, then you can do what you need to do for as long as you need. When we try to abound in hope by our power, we fade pretty quickly. But when we draw power from the Holy Spirit, then we can abound in hope. We can abound in hope. Kids, maybe you've poured a can of soda into a cup before, a little too fast, and the cup quickly fills up and then overflows out onto the table. When God fills us 
with joy and peace and believing, then by his power we can abound in hope. We can overflow with hope. Christ is our hope. No other source of hope will do. We know this from experience, but we easily forget it. No other source of hope will do. Christ alone is our hope. That's what we sing together sometimes. In Christ alone, our hope is found. If you don't have Christ, you don't have hope. If you have Christ, you can be full of hope. Joy, peace, hope, all those come from God. And he gives them to us when we believe in his son. And then all throughout our lives as Christians, every day, no matter what circumstances we are in, we can draw these things from God by faith. We can draw joy and peace and hope from the well. Last thought. As I said at the beginning, in the world, hope is hard to come by. But in Christ, hope is near at hand. Christ is our hope. And by the power of Christ, we can abound in hope. No matter what's going on in the world around us, no matter what's going on in our church or at work or school or in our families, no matter what's going on in our bodies or our souls, no matter what's going on in any of the circumstances of our lives, because Christ is our source of hope, by the power of Christ, we can abound in hope. In any and every circumstance. So may the God of hope fill us with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit we may abound in hope. Let's pray together. Our God, we pray that you would fill us with all these things. Fill us to overflowing so that we might encourage each other and commend the gospel to unbelievers and glorify you for your mercy. By the power of your spirit, make us a people who abound in hope. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Let's take a minute now to think and pray about what we've heard and then we'll sing to the Lord together.